Welcome to The Q, Conversations in Digital Media. This podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media, digital campaign execution and optimization since 2004. Our next episode is queued up and ready to roll. Thank you for listening. You're in the queue. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Q1 Media partners with agencies and brands all across the nation for all their digital marketing needs, whether it's CTV, OTT, location-based mobile device ID targeting, search engine marketing, targeted display, any research and data that you need, whatever it is, Q1 Media can help with your marketing efforts. Please check out Q1 Media's website at q1media.com. That's Q, the number one, media.com. You can view case studies, examples of our work, uh, or just check out more episodes of the podcast, The Q, Conversations in Digital Media. This episode of the podcast was a great one, especially with uh, the uniqueness and of uh, timing of all the presidential debates going on, the po- political space starting to heat up and gear up for the 2020 races. Uh, we had buying time in, uh, and they, with Nathaniel Cronish and Aaron Connolly, uh, they have worked within the political marketing space uh, for, God, I mean, Nathaniel's been doing it since the early 2000s. Uh, and then Aaron got our background working in uh, polling and, and, and data and really the, the analytics side of things. Uh, they were able to provide so much insights on what it takes to do a marketing campaign in the political space and also kind of touch on some of the changes that have happened within uh, you know, Facebook, social media, uh, some of the new things that they have to keep up with the GDPR compliance. Uh, consumer protection and privacy laws, all that stuff. Uh, so it was a great podcast just to talk about how they work with their clients, um, how they really get advocacy campaigns out there, how they reach people, and the approaches they take and the strategic uh, ways they'll go about you know, buying media and, and placing buys. So hopefully you enjoy it. This is uh, The Cube. Awesome. Thanks, Nathaniel. Thanks, Aaron, for joining us here on the queue. Uh, first of all, I just want to say, Aaron, you said it's your, your it's not your first time to Austin. I, you just said that you're into music. I imagine you've pro- maybe been here for some music festival. I don't know. What, I haven't. I haven't oh, yet. No. I haven't yet, but it's something that I want to do. We were actually talking about what the South, uh, South by Southwest. I want to come back for that. Definitely. Yeah, they actually do have, and it's not just music now. It's crazy. They have interactive film, um, God, all the gaming. It's sports. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's really become a big tech conference, mm-hmm. almost more than a music festival at this point. And they, it's it's a, a crazy, just the city's on fire type thing. And it's the best weather. Y'all came here in in September, where it's still ninety five degrees. <laughs> But it, people do come down here during South by, and they're like, "Oh yeah, this is the, how the weather is supposed to be: uh, 80 degrees and 60 at night." Mm-hmm. But not normally the case. So, uh, but yeah, Nathaniel, where, where are you from? Uh, where do you? Where'd you? So I live in Potomac, Maryland, mm-hmm. and I hail from Rockville, Maryland, which is about five minutes away. Uh, went to the University of Maryland at College Park, and live in work in D.C. pretty much my whole life, and that's a rarity. I mean, most people that kind of grow up around Washington leave. Um, Very few people that sort of grew up where I grew up are still there. And most of the people that live there now hail from other places. So it's very much a transient town. So to say sort of born and raised is you see people's eyeballs kind of get a little wide when you're there. Yeah, it's very strange. 
Where, why, why is that? Do you think it's just people are, it's just such a political well, heavy town? Political or? and government. I think, mm -hmm. I think people think politics in DC, but it's also very much a government town. So, you know, our factory town is, is politics and government and, and not even just politics, but really working for the federal government too. That's kind of our industry. Um, and people that don't want to do that go other places. Um, and then the people from all over the country that do want to work in government and, and service or politics come from really all over. And it really makes DC kind of a cool place because it's very, it's a very diverse town, um, very much multicultural, a lot of different people, a lot of different opinions. Um, and the city has sort of taken on that vibrancy over the last 20 years. And it's, it's a really cool place to live. Yeah, what was it like growing up there? I mean, was it were you pretty aware of what was going on in the nation at all times? Like, were you very much so? Yeah. Um, you know, my dad worked for the Census Bureau, um, so very much kind of the the government sort of bureaucracy and that whole machine. Not very political at all. Not a political appointee, but but really sort of um, was a number cruncher and a computer programmer for the Census Bureau my whole life um, or until he retired. What years was he doing that? So he started in the early 70s. Um, wow. so he was really one of the first sort of computer, when, when the Census Bureau first started sort of using computers to literally count humans in America, <laughs> he was sort of one of the forefront programmers of that. And he stuck there until 2003 when he retired. Um, and so watching that was, was, was fascinating um, and being in that household. But other than that, it was really just a typical suburban, you know, outside of a regular city. It's just... Like I said, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word white collar, blue collar. I mean, government was was sort of the industry of of that town. So. Yeah, makes sense too, because then mm -hmm. people who are not wanting to be in service or government, they're like, "Hey, I got to get out of here. Go right. to New York." Where I guess you're coming from, Aaron. I just moved there, yeah. So I moved there. I lived for over like a year, a little bit over a year now. But I lived in D.C. for eight years. I went to school there, and then. Um, Maryland as well, or no? I went to George Washington oh, okay, in DC. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm from Massachusetts originally, so nice. kind of all over the place. <laughs> but yeah, I just moved to New York, been there for a little bit over a year. But yeah, that's how I got started with buying time. Was I was there in DC and just kind of got over it at the buying that's time. That's great. How do you like New York so far? I like it. It's good. It's like a good halfway point between Massachusetts and DC, and it's a whole. It's a I mean, it's New York. There's, yeah. You're never wanting for anything to do. No, so, no, that's true. Yeah. The city and the nurse sleeps. Um, as, as an agency, it's good to have a presence in New York. And yeah. Aaron, Aaron does that phenomenally <laughs> for me. So The yeah. one-person presence. <laughs> so where, uh, how did you get involved in the marketing political side of things? Um, well, going to school in D.C., I was always interning. I think I interned every semester except for like one. Um, and then my second semester senior year I worked at a polling agency which was in like writing the political polls and kind of doing like cross tabulations and like data um, and like kind of stuff like that and then um what was that like that I mean at the time it was in 2014 so it was uh -huh. interesting yeah. yeah it was you know it was cool I mean it's something that you don't really think you're gonna go into like how the, actually you structure the questions and like the way that you phrase things and like listening to people that give the polling and then getting all the data back. It was really interesting. Is it most um, like post-voter polling or is it just? All like, oh, really? no, 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 like tracking, sorry, not post-voter. We did a little bit, but mostly it was um, like tracking polls and like initial polls and kind of seeing how you, the way to craft the messaging to then kind of give it over to the creative agencies right. that then give it to like a buying time. So which is then, wow. we were in the same suite as buying time and I kind of just transitioned over. And I, and I would say this too, I mean, Aaron's background in polling, it, it's very unique. Um, in the, the media agency, uh, in the media agency world. And, you know, as we get more reliant on data and 
and understanding our audiences, and as our audiences are kind of fragmented, having somebody with a data and polling background is almost like having kind of a secret weapon in your agency. Um, and Aaron gives us a perspective from the polling side that I think is very unique that we're very lucky to have. Yeah. Um, and, and we've been very, very grateful for that. That's good. Yeah, I, data is king now. And it is. I think it's, 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 if you haven't figured that out yet. It is. It's, <laughs> it's, that's funny. Uh, so how did you get started in the end? I know you, you grew up in D.C., so you probably were around it. And your so I did. I grew up in D.C., and I, you know, I sort of grew up around all the big, giant, white buildings downtown. And mm -hmm. I, I had a fascination in, with history. So history, I was sort of always a history geek in high school and, and college and a government geek and politics geek. And Do you have a favorite history, time period? History, uh, I would say post-World War II, just because that's uh, sort of the post-Rooseveltian era mm -hmm. through today. But that interest in history, I think, sparked sort of an interest in government and sort of shaping history. So when I graduated college in 2000, my first job was really any political job that I could find. And that's how I think a lot of people start in politics in DC is they just they just want to get in the door somewhere. For me, that was a uh, democratic consulting, media consulting firm called Fenn and King Communications, which is now Fenn Communications. Um, and I worked as sort of a media buyer there, uh, working for uh, just basically buying advertising time for any, any, any one of our political clients during that election cycle. And that was the Clinton-Gore, sorry, that was, that was the yeah. Gore-Bush cycle. That was 2000. That was the great Florida year. Um, yeah. And the infamous so, yeah, that hanging was, chads. That was, that was the hanging chad year. Exactly. That was my first foray into how insane politics actually is when you Ugh. are in it. Um, and so I worked there and then did that through 2000. And then in 2002, a buddy of mine actually ran for the Maryland House of Delegates, who I graduated University of Maryland with. He graduated a couple of years before me and took me on as his campaign manager. And so me and this 25-year-old guy were running around, you know, Prince George's County, Maryland, just trying to get any vote we possibly could and ended up winning. Um, what was that, the there, grassroots campaign like? It was all grassroots campaign. Yeah. So that was, it, was, it was from 2000 doing all television and mass media mm -hmm. to going in 2002, literally knocking door to door with no media budget at all and just a couple of mailers. And What was that day like? I guess, how long were you out there just knocking on doors? So that primary was in... September. It was actually September 12th, which uh -huh. was September 12th, 2002, which was actually the year after September 11th, 2001. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was always that kind of hanging over that primary date. But, you know, that there was a very competitive primary. Um, and so we basically spent June through August every day in D.C. 90 degree heat, knocking on doors and trying to just basically get every vote you can, because that's how it worked. Um, and it wasn't a very organized campaign structure. It was literally just us banging doors as much as we, we could and meeting people. And and um, what I discovered doing that was that I liked sitting on my ass at a desk <laughs> buying media <laughs> and, not in being, and, not and not schwitzing in 95 degree heat. And I think that's how I got back into the media. And then in 2003, I joined the firm that I'm with now. Uh, buying time where I started out as again very similar job media buying media strategy and then from there you know became media director in 2006 and then uh, broke off the did and then as the digital sort of media mm -hmm. started to come into fold in, in the mid 2000s 
uh, broke off the digital practice in 2015, did, did the digital media and then broke out the digital practice in 2015 as its own separate entity and started buying Time Digital. And I'm the CEO of that right now. And I also still hold the hat of vice president over at the sort of mother firm buying time. That's great. Yeah. I guess you were there at a, an interesting time with the digital it was just boom of not only social media, yeah. but just people being online more it and having was. more access to it. I mean, it. I bought my first digital ad. I remember it I, specifically. It was, a, it was a banner ad that I was able to get on Yahoo. And it was this giant, huge accomplishment in 2004 it was during the wow. 2004 election That's cycle yeah during it was a it was a issue group that wanted to get voters out in Colorado for John Kerry um, and it was I had I learned all about digital specs and literally doing it on the fly finding a number for Yahoo basically by googling what is Yahoo's <laughs> phone number <laughs> You um, Yahoo, Yahoo's phone. Yeah, like literally Googling, like what is, or no, there wasn't Google Ask at the time. Jeeves. Yeah, I don't even know if there was Google yeah. at the time, Ask but it was Jeeves literally Ask Jeezing. Like how do I, how do I find the phone number for Google? And then going through, spending half a day trying to get to their advertising firm and then somehow getting lucky enough to find somebody that could sell me a banner at, I, I think the budget was probably like in the thousands, which is a drop in the bucket. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they let me do it, and I sent them this file, and I remember being so proud to see this ad for one of my clients on Yahoo, um, Yahoo.com in Colorado, <laughs> and they sent me the screenshot, and it was this big, giant, like... <laughs> Eureka moment. I thought felt like I f published my first book. Like if you think about what it what it must feel like to get the first book jacket if you're an author, that's that was my feeling when I saw Your my first, first my first static banner ad yeah. on Yahoo, and that was 2004. Um, so it's just funny that like to think about this predated Facebook, this predated YouTube, this predated the idea that any kind of video advertising online yeah. predated any of that. Um, and and really, so so from from this very simple static image, which is what the technology was of the day, um, to watch the evolution of how digital media has grown through now, when you're literally running entire television campaigns through digital platforms, um, it's been kind of fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess you also were working for a company that was very uh, forward thinking. I, I'm sure y'all were. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if there was a ton of other uh, marketing companies that worked with political clients that were as, I don't know, forefront, on the forefront of like buying digital ads. Well, I always like to think that we are yeah. currently on the forefront yeah. of it. Um, but at that time, no, there wasn't a lot of, of digital ad buying for for elections at all. Very, very, very. Was very there early. a way to track it? I know you were happy to see that, the so screenshot. No, I mean, but again, yeah. it's an interesting question too. We weren't, I mean, obviously I didn't have an ad server at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we were very reliant on publishers and, and or, or any publisher for that matter, just to give us any data that mm -hmm. they possibly could. Now, obviously since then we have our own ad server and we're ingesting all the ads and we have all the data on our own dashboard in real time, but certainly not then that wasn't the case. And it wasn't very targeted either. It was like, it was mind blowing that I could run an ad just in Colorado that like <laughs> Yahoo was smart enough to be able to do that. It was just, really, you're like, really I can cool. geo target just yeah, the state. It was yeah. amazing. It was like, <laughs> holy crap. Um, like, what's a geo target? Right. <laughs> like, yeah, what's a geofence? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess how has that been too? I guess over the course of working with your whatever advocacy advocacy campaign you work mm -hmm. with and maybe educating these uh, these certain initiatives or even candidates that you work with. 
And is that is that difficult over time? Been over time just to like, it, you know, it's really it's it's for I would say until the 2010 2012 period, we were doing a lot of educating on things that you could kind of do, and here here are all the things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I think we have a lot of clients and a lot of people in the world that are kind of too smart to be dangerous or they're 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 so smart that they're dangerous where now we're telling a lot of people kind of what you can't do yeah um and so i think that there's a lot of myths that you know people think that there's targeting parameters out there that 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 are that are doable and we have to tell them we kind of find ourselves reining them in a little bit Mm -hmm. um i don't think people think about the numbers in terms of micro targeting the way that they should and so we'll be given these advertising budgets and then they'll give us these really, really small targeting parameters, and we find ourselves basically having to tell our clients, you know, we, we could do that, but but your frequencies are going to be through the roof, and you're going to be wasting your money running the same ad to the same individual 200 times over the course of, like, three days. And that's going to make them right, have it, the opposite reaction. It, it if will. you get served it, 200 ads of the same thing, they're not going to want the yeah. reaction that you And I guess it's a, long, it's a long rambling way of saying there's a lot of things that we, I guess, quote unquote, can do, but there's a, that doesn't necessarily mean we should do it. Um, and I find me, myself saying that a lot of times to clients too. Yes, we, mm-hmm. we can do that, but should we do it? Question mark. Um, and a lot of that also comes down to data usage and really what's the data actually telling you and how valuable is, is the data that you actually have as well. Yeah, how do you discern? I mean, you're on the data side. How do you tell which data to use or which one to apply uh, when you're you're working with a particular campaign? It depends on like what kind of data they want, a first party versus third party data. So if they have like a list, we need to match it and see like if it's coming back with a solid match rate or not and then figuring out kind of like why, if it's a bad match rate, kind of why that's happening or if we're pulling in like third party lists seeing the audience sizes and seeing like actually what the client wants to get at. And if they, again, like the micro targeting, it's like sometimes the, the more specific, they're actually not going to get the people they want. So it's kind of looking at the different types of data that you can bring in and seeing like when you cross them, like what's the audience size. And if that's actually like, de- like depending on the population or community, you can realize like, okay, that's, that's not what we want to be doing. There's clearly something off or like mm-hmm. there's something that we're missing. So it's kind of just like piecing it together and, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to numbers. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you're going to give me a list of 100 people that I can match maybe 70% of it, then that's 70 people. And then you're going to give me a budget of many, many thousands of dollars. The cost to reach that individual voter, there's a significant diminishing return on that. Um, at some point, it's just a terrible business decision. You could just mm-hmm. call that person and say, hey, vote for me. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which there are people that do that. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> and, 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 and that's, those are extreme examples. Um, but some of the examples that we get aren't that far off from that, where you know, we're, we're, when you actually do the math on what is the cost per reaching that individual and penetrating that one person with the budget that you have, then diminishing returns come into play, and at some point you're actually hurting your overall campaign, not just your media campaign, but you know these are resources that can be spent other ways. Um, and so we try to be honest with our clients um, and really help them make those decisions because, like I said, you know a lot of them don't really, you know, they they think that that okay, well, 
you know, there's this sort of myth out there that you need to spend 15% of your dollars on digital or whatever the number is. And so they, they do the math and this is what 15% of their budget is on digital. And then they give you the audience and, and the numbers don't necessarily align. Um, we try to, our, what's best for business for us is our clients winning and our clients winning elections um, and, our, and, our, and whatever advocacy campaigns, things passing. Um, it's not necessarily just buying the most impressions that we possibly can. And so, you know, at the end of the day, wins are, are what helps my business model more than just placing a whole bunch of money. Yeah. Um, because more wins means more clients, means more clients, means more clients. Uh, and so it's incumbent on us to really help our clients make really good decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and when they're messing around with data that they don't necessarily A, either understand or budgets that they don't really understand what that can actually accomplish, it can get really dangerous. Um, and you know, one of the things that I think I learned from that 2002 election when I was banging on doors was how valuable campaign resources are. Mm -hmm. um, and that you know, the, the budget that you get doesn't just come out of thin air. I mean, more often than not, that a, a political campaign budget is literally a, the campaign calling his best friends and just asking for money for three hours a day. Um, and that can be a pride-sucking, very difficult, tenuous uh, experience. And so when you have a campaign or a candidate that's working so hard and, and swallowing so much pride and just asking people for any donation you possibly can get, you need to be very good stewards of those, of those budgets. Um, and you have a responsibility to be stewards of those budgets. So you know, with that sort of lurking in the back of your minds, it's incumbent upon us to be as open and honest with the best way that they can spend their campaign dollars to get the voters that they can get and do that as responsibly as possible. And there should never be a recommendation of just buying the most impressions. If somebody's telling you, like if a company is telling you, yeah, just we can just buy the most impressions, that means they're not putting security on it, they're not having like fraud detection, they're not actually probably targeting as much as they should. That's like just the, like if somebody ever says we just want to buy the most impressions, that's a bigger <laughs> conversation. It's like, no, we want them to be like good impressions. We want their, the KPIs to match up. That should never be like the main KPIs, just like serve impressions. It's changed. Uh, you know, that used, that probably may have been a thing 15, 14 years ago. Hey, I just want to get as many impressions. I, I That was the thing. But then you viewability and mm -hmm. all the other layering and all the other targeting. It's definitely right. changed the game. And then, the, and you know, a lot of our clients are also come from the television side. Yeah. And so they don't think about things like viewability or, or ad fraud. Um, you know, they want to get their thousand or 1500 gross rating points per spot. And, you know, they want the equivalent of that. Um, and so, you know, they think a, a rating point, a rating point, a rating point. Well, an impression isn't an impression, isn't an impression. You know, there's mm -hmm. a very different return on what a display ad will get you versus a skippable YouTube ad versus a Facebook message versus an unskippable pre-roll ad or an OTT ad. These are all very different types of impressions and they're all going to lend to very different KPIs. Um, and so understanding that and helping our clients understand that is paramount. How has the digital space changed grassroots campaigns, you know, smaller campaigns? Is it easier for I mean, data? You can gain access to data or if you're working with somebody uh, mm -hmm. like buying time. Um, but how has that changed the approach with, you know, say knocking on doors or is it that is it as important as maybe having a presence online? Um, I, again, grassroots isn't 
I haven't really done grassroots in right. you know, 17 years, so it's not my expertise. But I would say this. One thing that it's really helped us to do isn't so much in terms of voter turnout and GOTV, but it's really it's a very good tool for organizing. So for organizing for a campaign event, uh, for bringing out volunteers, raising money, uh, uh, building volunteer lists. Uh, digital campaigns have been very, very important. I think that that the use of digital, not so much on the uh, certainly on the mass media scale, turning out voters, it's, it's very helpful. But for the grassroots side, I think digital communications are used more as tools to bolster the campaign, um, as much as the the turning out of voters. So, you know, it's, it's never going to replace knocking on doors, and mm -hmm. it's never going to replace a really good piece of mail. Um, but what it will do is it'll bring people in the door and it'll bring people into your campaign that maybe wouldn't have been in your campaign, you know, 15 years ago. Right. And you can do a good amount with like a small budget. Sure. Like there's a lot that Absolutely. we can do with a small budget, which I feel like in other parts of the industry, like maybe like a TV spot's always going to be a certain mm -hmm. amount. You can hit a small community of people, you know, right. like a, a suburb or like a town or like a single zip code. With a couple hundred dollars, I mean, I would, you know, I'm not going to recommend a couple hundred dollars, yeah. but you can, you can do something with it that's sure. actually going to be fruitful and not just like throwing money at something. It's sure. like we can actually, you know, come up with some tactics and actually make it worth their while and, you know, make those dollars actually go far. And yeah, and to be clear, I mean, I think that that as an ad, as an awareness play and as a name ID play, I think digital is one of the strongest things you can do right now. Yep. But in terms of just sort of like that to to. To your original question, mm -hmm. on the grassroots level, um, you know, you, to build communities using digital has is, is, is been sort of a game changer, I think, on the, on, the, on the ground and local levels. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like less waste, again, like a zip Absolutely. code versus like a DMA. Yeah. There's going to be so much less waste if you only have a certain amount of money to spend. Digital is pretty much a, a, a strong way to go. And you know who the voters are. Um, not that your dad didn't, probably, the Census Bureau back in the in the 70s, which I guess this might be an exciting time for Census Bureau people. It's 2020s coming up, and that's a, that's a big year it for is. people. Yep. Um, so I guess let's let's move in, and this is something I know that our listeners are probably going to want to hear from, from how y'all have dealt with it, but social media and the changes after the 2016 election, everybody's, right. you know, <laughs> what is, I mean, you can probably talk to this a lot, but um, I guess, how have y'all dealt with that? I guess first question and then second question, what has been the change since then? So I think one of the biggest things since 2016 is the requirements from us, the agencies and the clients to sort of disclose who's paying for these ads. Um, and I will say this, Facebook, Google, and Twitter have done a really good job over the last 18 months or, or 12 months to update their political disclosure um, practices. It, it, I'm not going to lie, it's a pain in the ass for us. <laughs> um, you know, we, we literally need to get W-9s from our clients now that we have to submit to Google and Twitter um, in order to run advertising for them. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually will in the next month for Facebook too. Facebook is also moving in that direction. Um, but also, we have to, as as individuals, we have to be verified by Facebook as well. So almost like Facebook needs to certify Nathaniel Cronish um, to be able to run political ads on their platform, and that process is fascinating too. Yeah. Um, the way that works is I had to submit my social security number and driver's license, both front and back, to Facebook. Um, pictures of it, and then Facebook. This is going to just the, the, the hilarity of this is, and the irony of this is so funny that Facebook 
sends you a letter in the mail, a postcard to your home address in the mail. So Facebook's not doing anything electric. They're actually literally sending you a, a, a postcard using U.S. mail, regular <laughs> mail with a stamp on it and everything. Shout out USPS. Yeah, yeah. delivered by a, by, a, exactly. by a postman. <laughs> by a postman or, or an owl, i.e. Yeah. Harry Potter. Yeah, Harry Potter. Or, yeah. <laughs> um, or a raven, however you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and then you, you take your postcard and your code and you have to, you know, input your code into Facebook. And then by doing that, Facebook knows that you're a U.S. resident. You have citizenship in the United States. So you can actually run ads you're not a robot. for a political you're not a bot. It's through your uh, Facebook account, though. It is. So you would log in, enter this so code. I log in as my Nathaniel Cronish Facebook account, mm -hmm. which has access to my business manager yeah. account through Facebook, which is the Facebook advertising platform. Um, but it knows that I'm the one importing the ads. Mm -hmm. And because I live in the United States and you know use US dollars, I can place Facebook ads and that authorizes mm -hmm. me. That's insane. And you had to do the same oh, thing? Yeah, I did the same thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. And that's the whole buy, like, buying time team or anybody who touches the campaigns? Anybody that touches, anybody that touches a political ad or creates an ad with a political disclaimer um, has to be has verified. To be. Yeah. So there's a couple of I think it's mm -hmm. a couple of us at our agency that have it. Yep. And this yeah. happened, you said, about eighteen this months was ago. Last two Mays ago, because it was two during years the, ago. Yeah, yeah, it was or May. It was of, May it was, of eighteen. Yeah, yeah, it was pre it was May the eighteen cycle. Wow. Yeah, so that was one, and then and then Google has sort of gone in a different direction where Google doesn't necessarily care who the individual is. They they do a little bit, but they really care a lot more about who the organization is that's that the advertising is being done on behalf of. Mm -hmm. So in order to um, make sure the, the organization is verified, we have to submit a W-9 form with a tax ID um, or showing or a legal FEC or FEC ID yeah, or yeah. A federal elections commission. If you're a federal candidate, mm -hmm. you have a federal election number that you can submit to, which is a lot easier because there's a website that just has all those. But but if it's not a federal candidate, we have to literally get W-9 forms that we have to upload to Google um, so that Google then okays that, okay, this is actually a real legitimate organization. Here is the Google Ads account that it's going to be advertising under. We know that they're a legitimate U.S. organization because we know the billing works. Um, so they care less about the individual and they care a little bit more about the organization. Now, Facebook is moving in that direction where they care now both about who the organization is mm -hmm. and who the advertiser is. I think with Facebook, it was step one confirming that we were like mm -hmm. an actual advertiser. Um, in like light of everything that happened and then step two is now kind of getting along the Google lines. I will say with Google though too, if you're buying on the programmatic platform, there is like a process. Like we had to go through a certification process yep. to actually be on that platform too That's as true. well though. So to, to run ads across any other to YouTube trade. or anything? Yeah, or? To yep. okay. YouTube, but also if you're trading on a programmatic network like yep. on Google, you yep. have Exchange. to be you have to be certified to and do that. Google has also restricted us from advertising in certain states yes, too where regulations on state. data um, mm -hmm. as is uh, they just they don't they don't accept they yeah the, the state legislatures have made certain yep things California's up. new law that'll California be will mm -hmm. yeah that, that's gonna add to the list too right now it's Washington Nevada New Jersey and Maryland uh, you literally can't run ads using Google maybe one more but yeah 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 the yeah there's a lot of other states that I know that have similar mm -hmm. legislative uh, bills that are going through I don't mm -hmm. know which ones I don't know if Texas is one of those but. It's not at this point, yeah. um, or at least not that I know of. Mm -hmm. I, I think the federal government needs to wrap their arms around it yeah. so that there's one standard. And for those Actually, people, the way that, that Europe has, by the way, you know, I think right. I think you know GDPR. I don't know if you were familiar with what that mm -hmm. is. Um, 
But oh, you can explain it. Yeah. I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a lot of acronyms. <laughs> but I think I think that model is coming to the yeah. United States yeah. um, a, a sooner rather than later. And I think that's really going to be that's going to change how not just political advertising is run, but the entire advertising ecosystem. How so? Are y'all how are y'all going to try and is there a way that you have already kind of set up like, oh, wow, well, well now we got to comply. It's and something we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the GDPR regulations actually are going to fall under you know, on, onto the, the, the clients and on, on the websites that we're advertising on behalf of. Um, but it will change how we're able to target media. I think, I think first party targeting is going to become a lot more complicated. And I think it's going to become a lot less frequent. I think you're going to see a lot less campaigns using first party information to target. And, and you know, whether that's a good thing or not, that, that's a whole other debate. Um, but I think you're going to go back to sort of the age of literally calling up websites and placing websites on one-off basis, almost like me in 2004 placing my banner ad on Yahoo and being mm -hmm. thrilled about that. I think that um, programmatic advertising is going to be very different um, w when that comes down the line. It'll be impacted yeah. pretty well. And you're, you're right. And I know I, Google's actually, I know we, you know, in conversations that I've had with them, they're, they're preparing for that mm -hmm. and, and the way that they're, they're sort of changing a lot of their... Um, the way that that they're looking toward the future, they're looking. Uh, I'm just trying to phrase this. Like yeah, well, transparency, but also the way that like Google Ads is going to function, and the way YouTube is going to function mm -hmm. is going to be very different um, two or three years from now. Yeah. So they're they're sort of preparing for that as well. Google Ads is already starting to take away certain things at the end of this right. month, uh, September 30th. Average position for SEM ads is going to be taken away, That's so you right. really can't optimize towards that. I think it's going to be based mostly on impression share now, mm -hmm. where you can kind of make optimizations in that regard. But I guess it levels the playing field a little bit. I'm not sure how. So I mean, if you have people who've been buying for years, then right. They're kind of um, they have some leverage, but it is it it is. But I mean that that quality score I think is such an important thing. I think that was really one of the really I think that the quality score I think is really one of the smart things that Google has in their buying platform um, on the SEM level. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out too. Yeah, and if there's uh, anything you know, that I'll explain to the, mm -hmm. the viewers uh, listeners too that there's give, basically what's happening with what the new laws with California GDPR mm -hmm. it's giving people the right to elect to That's not right. use their data or use their data and it'll have to be prompted maybe through websites or That's right. So in order in order to in order to target somebody on a first party list meaning sort of a list that we get from the board of elections um we what what GDPR is saying in Europe is that if you want to target those individuals or you want to use their information to target them, you need their permission. So you need basically permission from every individual needs to give you consent to basically um, to advertise on their behalf. And, it, and also on the website side, um, you basically need consent from the individual to cookie their computer. So you, you see can't that just, now if you go yeah, on you like the UK, like yep. the Daily Mail or something yep. like that, you see like they have to check the box. Like I you, understand that my you cookie need, You need that consent. So that, that that's all a part of it too. Um, Which can happen every time your computer right. gets cached or whatever. Like you, every time you go to new web, whatever right. happens, yeah. you get a new device. You have to continually sure. And it's almost. I mean, it's 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 a her Herculean task. It's impossible really to get consent from everybody on a first party list to target. Um, certainly, that's that's not something that's going to be doable. So, you know, I think that that that's why being able to target on first party is going to be a good thing in the past, probably sooner rather than later. Yeah. What about um. 
and this is a, a s section of the, the biz that's changed recently with TV and radio, mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily dying, but um, we, we have a podcast that we're listening to right now sure. and we're doing, but everything's kind of moved to digital. Um, have, has, how has that transition been going to, say, Pandora, Spotify, or connected TV in that regard with uh, the TV platforms uh, and over-the-top television changing? That's a great question. Um, so it's funny. I mean, we, we talked about that 2000 election cycle that, that sort of talked about before where everything was broadcast. Pretty much my job at that time and the job of a media buyer was basically to buy as much broadcast media as you could and or as much radio as you could, just literal, literal, linear terrestrial radio. Um, and cable was this just fascinating new technology that was just sort of coming out. And then the cable MSAs were sort of learning to sell themselves on local levels. So the idea that you could call up at the time, you know, Comcast or Time Warner and buy cable locally in a certain county was this brand new game changing idea that you could bring a spot on ESPN was, yeah. was amazing in the 2000s. For a much cheaper cost. For a much cheaper yeah. cost and targeting. And that, so in a way, you know, in 2000, cable was kind of like the digital of of that time. Um, and that was sort of the more micro-targeting of like that era. And, and the broad rotators you had to buy and the ads literally ran just the most random times um, when you were buying cable. But it, that was that was kind of the digital back then. Um, and so to, to see a place right now where you're, you're almost not even buying broadcast in many markets or not even cable in many markets because, you know, your audience of under 35 year olds aren't watching live television. Nope. I mean, they're just, they're just not, they're watching things, even if they do have cable. And, and I think that the cord cutting number that you're hearing all the time is, is very overplayed. Right. And I can go into that too. And cord That's, nevers also yeah. like some people that just nev never, but those Gen are Gen Zers. Yeah. Even, they're never going to have cable. Even those yeah. are such under, under over. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the more overplayed things. I think still more people are kind of watching their televisions than, then I don't think I know. I mean, the numbers say that they are, but the problem is they're not watching them in live, mm -hmm. live in prime time. Um, and yes, the people still cable penetrations are still ninety percent, whether it's cable or direct TV nationwide. I mean, I, again, that's another tangent I can go off on. But <laughs> but that being said, they're still not watching live television. That under thirty five year old, um, and so you have to still hit them with that thirty second campaign ad. How do you do that? Um, and that really has been the challenge sort of of where we are right now. Um, how do you penetrate your 1,000 gross rating points of television so that you can ensure that everybody in your audience is seeing the spot 10 to 15 times? Now, certainly like that older demographic, they're still watching local news. They're still, they're still consuming news and, and there's still that, that value in broadcast television. And I think sports have become more important to buy because that's, mm -hmm live television that people are, are consuming. Um, but finding those audiences other places where they're watching it is very difficult and very fractionated. They're all over the place. They're watching things all over the map. Um, and they're, what's, what's really getting frustrating too, and what's, what's gotten frustrating is, is the amount of non-ad supported platforms mm -hmm. that are being consumed too. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about Netflix and Amazon Prime and, you know, a lot of the OTT platforms too, you know, we, where where can we hit these people with ads? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
That's interesting too. I, I, as a cord cutter myself, and being just slightly under the age of thirty-five, it's it's you're right. The cord cutting is is definitely becoming a thing, and also there's other platforms that sure. are somewhat better, like whether it's YouTube Live or Hulu Live mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Sling. Um, how difficult is it right now to buy across? You know those. I mean, is it is it kind of a difficult for y'all to say you have an advocacy campaign? Let's just say Colorado again, mm -hmm. um, and you need to hit certain communities. It is there is it easy for y'all to go okay well now how do, who do we go after so it depends you know? on the audience yeah i mean and that's where that's where doing the research on finding out what audience what your audience is consuming certainly you know and again talking in very big generalities here if it's an older demographic you know our our data is probably going to show us that they're still consuming you know regular linear broadcast and cable television um and facebook. and facebook absolutely facebook, facebook yes yeah. Absolutely. All the moms and dads on Facebook and grandparents and absolutely Facebook, yeah. um, and that and that needs to be taken into the 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 math as well. Um, but ultimately, it's where your audience is consuming media, and that's where the research becomes mm -hmm. paramount of importance. The data—that's where the data comes in. Like looking at the lists, looking at the third-party segments, and seeing. Okay, if on some certain OTT platform, there's the reach is going to be so small, and then you compare it to some like another medium, like a Facebook, and then the reach is going to be a lot larger. You have to mm -hmm. kind of like factor that in, like why, why is that? Does that yeah. mean it, it means that they're not as present on one versus the other, and you our, have to really factor that in. Our media plans are sort of resembling big giant puzzles now mm -hmm. more yeah. than ever. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that's probably the best way to describe yeah, it it's, is it's is you know finding the different pieces to to create your your larger picture for whatever the target audience is. Um, so before that, it was just buying broadcast and cable, but now it's it's buying this many impressions on this platform, again, this many impressions on this platform, this many impressions on this platform, and this much television over here, and that's gonna give you your best reach and frequency across like this over general plan. audience. Yeah. It's kind of insane to think that, you know, 15, uh, 16 years ago, starting out there, at buying time, and then you said, you know, you're kind of the main piece of the digital. Well, the digital has just morphed into probably six different sections: <laughs> social media, right. connected TV, display, yeah. programmatic. You could go and like. It, it is. It's so funny too because it, the way you bucket these things too can be very mm -hmm. differently. Mm -hmm. So like things like the Pandoras and the Spotify's of the world, you know, for certain campaigns those go in the digital bucket, but for certain campaigns those go in the radio bucket and the traditional bucket. Um, OTT platforms, same thing. You know, for many, many of our campaigns, those that's digital. But if you're buying the connected TV portion of the OTT, um, if you're like if you're buying connected TV, for example, then does connected TV go in digital, or is that part of your television budget? So that's a very interesting push pull that we we've. And sometimes it's completely even separate. Sometimes they have a, people buying TV, people buying digital, and separate people buying OTT because they consider them just like all in their own buckets. It's right. just, mm -hmm. it depends honestly on the consultant and the client how they categorize it or how, it also depends like our company is kind of uniquely situated that we do buy TV, radio, and you know, digital and everything mm -hmm. in between so that we can kind of have the conversations and make more of like a holistic, like full plan. But also there are times that we're just doing the digital portion and we're not buying with the, the TV side of our company. So it kind of also depends on that and where our clients think that the OTT fits in or thinks that yeah. the digital radio mm -hmm. fits in. But that's something I'm very proud of too. I think that yeah. our agency is very unique in the fact that we do digital and quote unquote traditional. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, there is sort of that stigma out there that if you are a television media buyer, then you know digital is foreign to you, and vice versa. If you know digital, then you probably haven't bought television. Because of the way buying time has evolved, you know, over the past 25 years, we are in a unique position to sort of understand the interplay of both platforms and really provide that 360 media campaign um, that I think our clients value. Yeah, and the experience of just living it. Sure, Because <laughs> you've definitely lived through that, uh, that change, so it's great. Uh, last question, just uh, what do you guys see as a... Uh, kind of uh, is is TikTok the next big play or <laughs> like what is uh, it's hard to predict the future yeah. uh, but I mean is there anything that you see in the political side especially coming up in the 2020 election cycle mm -hmm. is there anything that you see as more of a, a, a clients are going to be asking for or a need uh, going into the next year I mean I would think based off you know I would think Twitter just because of how much conversation has been going on about and on Twitter, and then I would also think um, OTT and CTV is kind of like the new, not the new, but there's a lot of space for it. And like we're talking mm -hmm. about, I think those are gonna be things that clients are gonna be leaning into. Um, and it's kind of like the new thing for this, not new, but. Yeah, scale is growing, the, this yeah, could be like. After, yeah, and there's more yeah. ways to buy and things like that. We have, I mean, we're doing more educating, back to that educating question earlier. We've done more educating on OTT over the top and connected television, I think, in the last six months um, than really kind of any platform since we've started. I mean, we've we've done entire sort of decks and sort of mm -hmm. um, webinars on on how OTT works and how that is all bought. That, that I think, is going to be the most important thing going forward in, in 2000 is sort of how do you replicate a television campaign when people aren't watching television. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really the core question of 2020. A lot of data. <laughs> and that's what you're going to be doing on the forefront. Uh, well, how can they find y'all if anybody's interested in, in just you know, following up or asking any questions that, with the work y'all have done? Sure. So we're located in Washington, D.C. Uh, website is buyingtime-digital.com. Uh, love to hear from you. Awesome. And eventually and, uh, I'll get you... Twitter at N Cronish. There you go. <laughs> and you've been approved by Facebook, so you're. I am. You're, I'm, you're a US I'm certified. We are certified. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I was hoping by the end of this podcast, I'll be. I would have uh, started y'all saying y'all. Uh, <laughs> I, I was saying it all night last night. It was just. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll take it back to Washington D.C. and other people will be like, "Oh, what happened to you? Take you one day mm -hmm. in Austin, and it yeah. changes." I'm you, gonna, so. That's how I'm going to address my kids. I think going forward. <laughs> Come on, y'all. Oh, they'll love that. Just show up yeah. with some boots and uh, a cowboy hat. My girls fun. will appreciate that. Yeah. My Boston parents will be like, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for joining us here in the queue. Thank, Thank you. you so much. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Q1 Media. Q1 Media partners with agencies and brands all across the nation for all their digital marketing needs, whether it's CTV, OTT, location-based mobile device ID targeting, search engine marketing, targeted display, any research and data that you need, whatever it is, Q1 Media can help with your marketing efforts. Please check out Q1 Media's website at q1media.com. That's Q, the number one, media.com. You can view case studies, examples of our work, uh, or just check out more episodes of the podcast, The Q, Conversations in Digital Media.